Hi there everyone. I just want to take this moment to send out my heartfelt thoughts to everyone who has been affected by the fires in Australia. All of the people who have lost family homes, lost loved ones whether they be human or animal. I also want to send my thoughts to all of the emergency services who are putting their lives on the line every day to fight a never-ending battle. Hello everyone, let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. You will hear tragic stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, a school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present the bad apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to our 25th case together, and the first of the third season, and the new decade. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too. So go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are now available on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel, so please, if you enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. I also want to do a quick plug for Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash True Crime Fix Podcast. For $3 a month, you can have early access to the new episodes, and for $5 a month, you can also have access to the video casts that I have done which are videos to accompany some of the episodes. I will release one of those a month again starting from the end of this month. I would also like to welcome Carol and Jess into the Patreon family who have joined since the last episode. I'm so glad to be back and the case that I'm covering today is one of obsessive behaviour which unfortunately led to murder. 
When I started this, the motives behind the crimes shocked me. But the more I research events, the more some common characteristics occur in cases. Not today, however. This week's episode has been more intriguing than some, as I have pieced together the timeline. I was fortunate this week, as my research was really helped by a documentary that I found. I have linked it to the show notes at the bottom of the episode, as to watch the investigation from start to finish is intriguing. The documentary team followed the detectives from the initial call to the conviction, so I have been able to get the original 999 calls as well as some of the police interviews. Everyone dreams of one day being successful. I still cling on to that dream for this podcast, but the victim in today's story had really made something of herself. However, Sometimes to be successful, certain sacrifices need to be made, and that allows for outside influences to infiltrate the life that you thought you knew. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and our first case of Season 3 is dedicated to the memory of Sadie Hartley. Sadie Catherine Cook was born in September 1955 and was the third of seven children raised in a three-bedroomed council house on a housing estate in Newark in Nottinghamshire. Her dad Roland was a long-distance lorry driver and her mum Olive was a full-time housewife. Her siblings said that she had a happy childhood and was close to her brothers and sisters. Every year, their parents would make Christmas special and would save up their money for a day trip to the English seaside town of Skegness, where Sadie and her siblings would build sandcastles, paddle in the sea, and enjoy the fun of the fair on the pier. She went to school at the Lily and Stones Grammar School which is in Newark, where she passed her 11-plus exams with ease. Sadie would go on to study microbiology and microchemistry at Brighton Polytechnic, which is now the University of Brighton. Upon graduating, she started working for Janssen, which is a part of the Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceutical Company. Her hard work meant that she had a steady rise within the company's hierarchy, working in the sales and marketing team before moving to the medical team which was responsible for running clinical trials. She was a respected lead on product development. Her best friend and future business partner Julie Taylor said she was a very bright person working within the pharmaceutical industry. In 1981 she married Gary Hartley who was an advertising director working for the same company. His responsibilities were promoting haematology products for people with leukaemia and lymphoma. In 1991, Sadie gave birth to the couple's first child, Harry. The following year, the couple had a second child, Charlotte. Julie Taylor recalled, Most people who work in the pharmaceutical industry have a passion for it. Sadie had a drive for it. 
She took very little time off for maternity leave. She could not wait to get back to work. That was Sadie, and she had the desire to make the world a better place. In 2000, they co-founded Hartley Taylor Medical Communications and built the firm into a 10-strong team with assets worth over a quarter of a million pounds. As a result of her increased wealth and success, Sadie wanted to get the best possible start for her children, sending them to study at the independent school Clare's Court in Maidenhead in Berkshire. Clare's Court provided education to young people aged between 3 and 18. Unfortunately, the relationship between Sadie and Gary did not last, and the couple were to divorce in 2002. After her divorce, Sadie started to explore the world. Her daughter Charlotte recalled her journeys, I quote. She always went off on trips by herself to different countries, doing long treks over a number of days. She always enjoyed skiing, anything outdoors, walking, being with friends, socialising, and loved a good party as well. She's rode through Marrakesh, Kyrgyzstan, Chile and Argentina, which was a coast-to-coast trip about two weeks long. Just really nice exotic places. She went skiing once a year, or sometimes up to three times a year, and we've skied with her since we were children. She has progressed over the years and was great at skiing. As a family going together, it was brilliant. Her family knew, though, that Sadie wanted her success professionally to translate into her love life. In 2002, Sadie had met fireman Ian Johnson through her work. In 2005, she asked him to accompany her to the Horse of the Year show in Birmingham and they started seeing each other when their schedules allowed, usually about six times a year. By this time, Sadie had moved into an £800,000 property in Great Butworth in the county of Cheshire, 40 miles southeast of Liverpool, and drove a Porsche. It really showed how Sadie's hard work had paid off, going from a three-bed council house with day trips to the seaside once a year to be able to be doing anything she dreamed of. In 2008, the couple's relationship somewhat fizzled out when Sadie's work commitments meant that she was seeing less and less of Ian Johnson. The couple were, however, able to rekindle their relationship when Ian retired from the fire service, meaning that their schedules did not conflict so much. Sadie moved to Helmshaw in Lancashire, less than 20 miles north of Manchester. In 2013, the couple went on holiday to Ecuador, and more free time meant that they were starting to see each other several times a week. By September 2014, Ian had moved in with Sadie, and she felt like she was having a second chance of happiness. On Friday the 15th of January 2016, the control room at Lancashire Police received a concern 999 call from a work colleague who had not seen Sadie. Good evening, Lancashire Police. I'm just wondering whether you'd be able to do a check on my boss's address. We've not heard from her for over 24 hours. Her name is Sadie Hartley.
emergency? Just arrived at the property. Uh, we're going to be forcing entry. There's a female inside on the floor uh, with blood around her. When the police attended Sadie's property on Sunnybank Road in Helmshaw, they discovered her on the floor as they entered the property with a large number of stab wounds. The following morning at Lancashire Police's headquarters, which were within Blackburn Police Station, Senior Investigating Officer, Detective Superintendent Paul Withers, Detective Chief Inspector Neil Ashton and Detective Sergeant Andrew Murphy briefed the investigation team of the events of the night before. They were immediately able to rule out Ian Johnson, who was in Switzerland skiing, a trip which Sadie would have been joining him on on that day if she had not been killed. Not that she was ever a suspect, but they were also able to rule out her daughter Charlotte's involvement as when they called her to notify her of her mother's passing, they discovered that she was in Hawaii with her new fiancé. The initial reports from the scenes of crime officers indicated that no damage had been caused to the property when gaining entry, prompting them to believe that Sadie potentially knew her attacker. At this stage though, the police were not ruling out anything, as they knew that a burglary had taken place at Sadie's property a couple of months before, leaving her apprehensive to be in the house alone. In order not to miss any evidence, Sadie was not moved from the scene for a full 24 hours after being discovered. Due to the positioning of Sadie, the police believed that she was attacked almost immediately after answering the front door. Sunnybank Road was a secluded street with vehicles only able to access one end of the road whilst the other end was pedestrian access only. All of the houses were on one side of the road while steep woodland banks were on the other. During the preliminary inquiries, the police had learned that Sadie had been alive at 7.30pm the evening that she was murdered as she had had a text conversation with a work colleague. Whilst they were doing their house-to-house visits, the officers were able, due to the value of the properties and the security systems installed, to obtain a number of CCTV files for the night before. It was through these that they got their first lead. As I've alluded to quite a bit, the road where Sadie lived was one of wealthy individuals lined with detached £1 million houses, all of which had top-of-the-range BMWs, Range Rovers, Porsches, Audis, etc. on their driveways. Therefore, when a sighting of an older model Renault Clio was spotted on the footage collected, it was definitely out of place. Shortly after the Clio disappeared from view, a figure walking with a purpose and with its hand in its pocket was making their way towards Sadie's house. Was this Sadie's murderer? Ian Johnson returned from Switzerland at around 5pm, catching the earliest possible flight upon learning about the death of his partner. When the police interviewed Ian, he revealed that whilst he'd been on the phone with Sadie on Tuesday evening, some flowers had arrived for her. Sadie had told him 
that they were delivered by a person in a baseball cap and the flowers were cheap ones like you would buy from a petrol station. In an email to a friend, Sadie said, had a knock on the door just after 9pm last night. Thought twice about opening it, but I did. It was a woman with a bunch of chrysanthemums in her hand, the sort you pick up from a garage for a couple of quid. And she said, Mrs Hartley, these are for you. But when I asked who they were from, she said she'd forgotten the name and then disappeared down the drive. No label or anything on them bit creepy really. Not for me in a course, but no idea who would do something like that. Needless to say, had a bad night's sleep last night as a result. Was this the killer conducting a visit to the property prior to the murder? Another key bit of information that Ian revealed during the interview was that there was a period that he and Sadie had not been exclusive. During this period, he had also been seeing another woman. That relationship had ended at the start of 2014, as he and Sadie had become more serious, but the ex-partner was known to be obsessive and would continue to contact him. As a result, the police decided that they would investigate this individual to see if they could have had anything to do with Sadie's death. Sarah Williams was born in 1981, but always appeared to seek the company of people who were older than her. She was best friends with a lady by the name of Katrina Walsh, whom she'd met at the local stables when she was aged just 12. Both loved horse riding and lived in each other's pockets, despite Katrina being 21 years her senior. Katrina was heavily tattooed and was in a biker group, riding a Harley Davidson that she called Raven. She also owned a horse called Zephyr, used tarot cards, and made jewellery, especially dragon-themed pendants. Katrina Walsh suffered from alopecia, which meant that she was never seen without a hat or a bandana. The pair would enjoy foreign holidays and spending time together watching Harry Potter films on Katrina's bed at her cluttered home in the city of Chester. Intelligent, artistic and eccentric with limited social skills, Katrina was described as being in awe of her younger companion. In early 1999, Sarah Williams had met David Hardwick, who ran his own heating oil business whilst at the Wirral Riding Centre in Neston. She was 17 and he was 57 and a married father, but she fell in love with him. Their relationship became sexual and he began to financially support her. When Sarah Williams left secondary school in Birkenhead, Merseyside, aged 18, she started to look for work. From 2005 to 2013, she had sold personal insurance from the offices of H. Boss Bank near to Chester City Centre. By 2006, Sarah Williams had bought her first home in Ellesmere Port, six miles north of Chester, a purchase which had been largely bankrolled by David Hardwick. 
Mr Hardwick was still living with his wife Rowena at the time. Sarah Williams regularly lived beyond her means, thanks to his weekly transfers of £320 into her bank account. In June 2010, she moved again to a property in Treeborth Road in Chester, and once again, David Hardwick gave her £75,000 to cover half the purchase price. Sarah Williams obtained more cash to accommodate her lifestyle as she rented out her Ellesmere Port property rather than selling it. She later acquired another property in Lizo, an area on the Wirral in Merseyside, to rent out thanks to a £43,000 loan from Katrina Walsh. Sarah Williams and David Hardwick's life revolved around horse riding and many exotic holidays around the world. They would enjoy up to 12 a year whilst his wife was fully aware of the affair. Just before her 30th birthday, Sarah Williams was driving on the M60 motorway in Manchester when she glanced across to the highly visible Chill Factor Indoor Ski Centre and thought, I fancy a new hobby. David Hardwick said to her that he was too old to ski, but faced with the prospect of her going alone, and maybe also the fear of losing her, he tagged along. She was fully committed to her new hobby and became an accomplished skier very quickly. Sarah Williams and David Hardwick spent so much time at the Crystal Ski Travel Agents at the Chill Factor that the organisation eventually gave her a job as a sales advisor. Within months of first learning to ski, Sarah Williams was having an affair with her instructor, 47-year-old married Thai martial arts gym owner, known locally as Master A. David initially sanctioned the fling, but she later thought he was on the verge of leaving her after he became jealous. He stayed with her though, and after Sarah Williams' relationship ended with her first ski instructor, she moved on to sleeping with another ski instructor. She had met Andy Paul while staying in the same ski lodge on holiday with David Hardwick in the French resort of Tijanese in January 2012. A sexual relationship developed on the return to the UK, apparently behind David's back, before Andy Paul said it finally ended 12 months later because Sarah Williams would not leave David. In December 2012, Sarah Williams and Ian Johnson began their relationship. Once again, Ian was her instructor at the Chill Factor. Ian said of the relationship, It was very quick. There was no dating. She would turn up at my house in a short skirt and red high heels. In October 2013, during Ian's trip to Ecuador with Sadie, the pair had continued to exchange sexually explicit messages whilst he was away, and the day after he arrived back, they had sex. The situation became even more bizarre when, in December 2013, Sadie and Ian went on a French skiing holiday and stayed in the same hotel as Sarah Williams and David Hardwick. During the interview with Ian Johnson, 
it was disclosed that Sarah Williams had written a letter to Sadie in September 2014, disclosing the relationship with Ian in an attempt to break the pair up. The letter was later recovered by the officers. It stated, I quote, Dear Sadie, I think you should know that Ian has been cheating on you for over a year. He's been having an affair with me since returning from Camp Swiss in August 2013. By his own admission, Ian is not in love with you, never has been and never will be. The lack of any form of chemistry or spark between you has been mentioned several times by different people who have no vested interest in either of you. The fact he doesn't love you is blatantly obvious for anyone to see and clearly backed up by the way he is behaving. Make no mistake about it, Ian knows that you are buying him and so does everyone else. He has said this himself by his own entirely free admission. Right now, he is letting you do it because it suits him to do so whilst he does what he wants behind your back. We have been sleeping together and everything else that goes with it week in and week out for some considerable time now. Have a look around the house. There's plenty of my things around the place. Has he even changed the sheets since we were last in there? There has been more lying, deceit and sneaking around than you would ever think. Did you really think he would go to the pub that many evenings? The sex is unbelievably fantastic. The best he has ever had by a really, really long way. We have never been able to get enough of each other. It satisfied a need in him. He will never really be able to suppress or manage without. Ian is stressed out and extremely depressed. His mental state is somewhat of a serious concern to me, hence why I'm writing this. I feel that you have played a significant part in getting him in the state he is in now, which appears to be worsening by the day. Ian explains some time ago that you are extremely ruthless in business and will do whatever it takes to get what you want. He explained that you would trample over anybody and their family to realise your goals. He also explained that he felt that you treat your personal relationships like a business. That would certainly appear to be true regarding him. From my perspective, it appears that you decided that you were going to trap Ian in whatever way necessary. You have put him under huge financial pressure due to your wildly differing desired standards of living. I appreciate that you have more than enough money to pay for whatever you do. However, Ian is a proud man who is not happy to be bought by you. He is aware that you are buying him and feels that this is the only way of coping financially, which is certainly not the case. You appear to be doing everything possible to perpetuate this. 
Why have you done this to him? Surely you would be far better off with someone who is your financial equal and at least wants to be with you, rather than someone you had to buy who is sleeping with someone else. You booked a holiday to the Galapagos Islands, which was way, way out of any budget that he could possibly afford. I know that you paid for it, but he was massively uncomfortable with it and felt the financial disparity was far too great. He wanted to leave you before going to the Galapagos Islands, but felt unable to do so due to how guilty he felt because the money you had spent on it. Whilst he unsurprisingly enjoyed the holiday, he utilised every opportunity to get in touch with me and was back in bed with me as soon as he walked through the front door. He literally couldn't get back in the house fast enough. Any hopes of escape from you were further diminished when shortly after returning from the Galapagos, you set about recruiting Hannah. It's fairly appalling to know that Ian felt that he was totally trapped because leaving you might jeopardise Hannah's future. You're using his daughter to blackmail him and make sure he stays where you want. You did a good job of blacking him into a corner where he felt more and more trapped by the situation. His only daughter is now dependent on you. Despite doing everything you have done so far to buy him and trap him, he's still lying to you, cheating and sleeping with me behind your back. Maybe it's about time that someone told you. Probably it just goes to show you can buy and trap someone with money and blackmail but can't make them love you or be faithful to you. Should you choose to talk to him about this, Bear in mind, it was not a one-off, an accident, or mistake, or any form of excuse. This was a choice made freely over and over and over again, for now more than 12 months, because it was what he wanted to do. Clearly, these are not the actions of someone with any respect, desire, love, or affection for you whatsoever. Should you wish to discuss anything here, you are free to contact me. The police were starting to get a picture of what the potential motive was. In order to get some concrete evidence putting Sarah Williams in the vicinity of Sadie's home, they therefore decided to track the whereabouts of her mobile telephone. Using cell site technology, her phone pinged mobile masts which put her near Sunnybank Road on the night of the murder and the night that the suspicious flowers were delivered. At 2.45am on the morning of Sunday the 17th, Lancashire police made their way the 55 miles to Williams' home on Treeborth Road in Chester. When the police forced entry, Williams was in bed and was promptly arrested for the murder of Sadie Hartley. She was transferred back to Blackburn Police Station. When the police examined William's phone, 
they discovered that despite the fact that the relationship had ended 16 months earlier, there were what were described as fantasy essays about Sadie's partner, Ian Johnson, on there in her notes section. The interviews with Williams were conducted by Detective Constable Bryony Midgley. This is an extract of the interviews that were taken from the ITV documentary, which I have included in the show notes. First thing I'm going to ask you, Sarah, is are you responsible for the death of Sadie Harley? Whilst the interview was being conducted in Blackburn, forensic teams were working to uncover evidence at Williams' address in Chester. Despite the claims that Williams made that she had stayed in Chester due to illness, the forensic teams found diluted blood spots in the sink of her house. A house which had been thoroughly cleaned with bleach very recently. The trace evidence was sent to the forensic lab to be analysed. In the UK, the police only have 72 hours from the arrest and detention of a suspect to charge in them. The clock was now ticking for Lancashire Police. 40 detectives were involved in trawling through hours of CCTV and witness statements which had been obtained at the start of the investigation. Police frogmen were also deployed to check the stream that ran through the woodland on the opposite side of Sunnybank from Sadie's property, searching for the murder weapon. Another theory that the police were working on was, as Sadie was aware of who Williams was, she was risking her cover being blown when the initial identification visit with the flowers took place. Did Williams have an accomplice? Did someone else knock on Sadie's door? Suspicion fell on another individual when the investigation team were conducting inquiries in Chester and a silver Vauxhall was parked up on the driveway of Williams' house. The same type of car which had been spotted by some of the neighbours of Sadie 
on the night of the suspicious flower delivery. Witnesses stated that in the car was a female and a bald-headed male. This car belonged to Williams' best friend, Katrina Walsh, and as mentioned previously in the episode, Katrina suffered from a condition known as alopecia. Alopecia is a condition in which hair is lost from some or all areas of the body. Often it results in a few bald spots on the scalp, each the size of a coin. Psychological stress may result, but otherwise people are generally healthy. In a few cases, all of the hair on the scalp or the body can be lost and the loss is permanent. Once suspicion had fallen on Walsh, Detective Chief Inspector Ashton requested that the same mobile trace was conducted by her phone provider to confirm that Walsh was in Helmshaw with Williams on the night of the flower delivery. Another positive outcome occurred shortly after when the team searching for where the flowers had been purchased had some success. A CCTV camera in the Tesco Superstore, one mile away from Helmshaw, had captured Williams buying flowers. Accompanying her was an individual in a baseball cap. The person matched the description that Sadie had given to Ian on the phone. What's more, Walsh was never known to leave home without a baseball cap. When the trace on Walsh's phone came back, it placed her in Helmshaw on the night of the flower delivery. The decision was made by the police to arrest Katrina Walsh on Monday the 18th. As holes were appearing in the story of Sarah Williams, she was interviewed by the police for a third time. Um, Holcombe Road in Helmshaw. When have you last been to his house? Um, to his house to see him. Not since we had that massive barney, but I've been and sat outside it quite a, quite a number of times. Um, when did you last do that? Last week, I think it was Thursday. Was that Thursday the 7th? Yeah, it must be. We're saying that on the 7th of January, you've gone over to Helmshaw, decided to confirm that Sadie lives at that address on Sunnybank by this ruse of having a, a bunch of flowers. Is that is that the case? No. You have to be out of your bloody mind. I'd like you to know that at this current time, officers were looking for Kit to arrest her on suspicion of murder. Her phone pings a mast in Helmshaw at the same time that your phone pings a mast in Helmshaw on Thursday the 7th of January. Is there anything you want to say in relation to that? I hope it's not as terrifying for her being arrested because like, having like, people coming into your house at three in the morning is it's, it's ter- it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Once again, Williams was calm when interviewed, not giving away much to the investigators. Following that interview, however, the police had a forensic development with regards to what happened on the night of the murder. When the investigation of Sadie's clothes had been conducted, a small loop of metal had become lodged in the roll neck of her top. The metal appeared as though it had been broken off from something so it was sent to the lab in the hope that it may be a new lead. The report came back stating that the object was a barb from a handheld stun gun. 
This would have been used to subdue Sadie and would explain why there was no defensive wounds on her body. The theory that the police were now working on was that Williams had gone to the door and asked Sadie to talk to her. Sadie was found 10 feet from the door in a position which indicated that she could have been leading someone in the direction of the living room with her back turned to the front door. When Katrina Walsh was arrested and brought in to Blackburn Police Station, she was very forthcoming with the custody sergeant. A custody sergeant's job is that they are responsible for the care and welfare of an arrested person who is brought into the custody suite. Walsh claimed to have a memory issue and she would forget things after three sleeps. She therefore wrote things down. It was also learnt that Walsh had been staying with David Hardwick, Williams' elderly partner. Walsh told the officers that she had written a note in her diary which related to the crime. She was quickly advised, however, that as the custody officers were not part of the investigation and she had not spoken to a solicitor, she should therefore wait for her interview before disclosing anything. The note that she had left for herself was, I quote, If it all goes up, say by the stream, by the southwest of Zephyr's field, high above the saddle. Officers went to the stable where her horse Zephyr was kept. Colling Farm was very large and was the home of 58 stables and 12 fields for the horses to get their exercise. Searching through all of the grass, mud and straw for a knife and a stun gun, the police officers were looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. Whilst this search was being conducted, the detectives responsible for the CCTV evidence had made further progress. Williams had told detectives that she had gone home sick and remained in bed all night. A CCTV camera on Treeborth Road, on the other hand, told a contradictory story. Williams was seen leaving her house with another person at 6.18pm. Treeborth Road is 62 miles away from Sunnybank Road and the journey would have taken 75 minutes, meaning that Williams could have been in the area in time for the detective's timeline. Williams' story again was starting to unravel. The following day, all of the new evidence was put to Williams. We've CCTV evidence that shows you, as you've just seen, at Haslingdon Tesco inside the store on the 7th of January. No you attended Tesco with a specific task in mind, didn't you? No comment. Didn't want us to know, did you? No what I'm going to show you next, Sarah, is CCTV from Sunbank Road and it shows two figures with a bunch of flowers are walking down the road towards Sadie's house. Have you and Kit gone there to check it's the right house? No comment. Why did you send Kit to the door? No comment. Why weren't you brave enough to go yourself? No comment. Is it because you now say that you recognise you? No comment. We've CCTV evidence. Shows two persons leaving William's address and walk along Trebolth Road time on the 14th of January 2016. 
you have explained to us you were ill in bed because you've been sick. Can you explain any of that to me? No comment. When searching Williams' house, the scene of crime officers had discovered an old-style Nokia mobile phone. On the phone were a number of calls which were of interest to the officers. On the 7th of January, there was a 17-second call at 3.17pm to Hartley Taylor Medical Communications, Sadie's company. The phone also answered the mystery of the Renault Clio. There are a number of unknown telephone numbers which have been dialed and upon investigation it was discovered that they were all people who were selling cars. The last number was that of a private seller of the Renault. The seller remembered that it was bought by a woman who paid cash. The investigation team now had the registration of the car. MA03 XHM Mike Alpha 03 X-Ray Hotel Mike An alert was put out for colleagues to be on the lookout for the vehicle whilst they run an ANPR or Automatic Number Plate Recognition software on the camera footage that they already held for the night of the murder to see if there was any indication as to where the car could possibly be. ANPR is a technology that uses character recognition on images to read vehicle registration plates and create vehicle location data. It can use existing CCTV, road rule enforcement cameras such as speed cameras or cameras specifically designed for the task. There were no hits. It wasn't until the parameters of the search were slightly widened that they had a hit. Williams had used some form of black tape on the license plate to change the 03 to a 08. This meant that the car had flagged up as a Toyota Yaris and not, as was clear from the picture, a Renault Clio. With the new correct information, the car was located in a car park 55 miles away from the crime scene. The police were excited as they believed that the car would be covered in blood as it was used as a getaway vehicle and the suspect would not have had chance to change their clothes. Katrina Walsh's first interview was conducted on Tuesday the 19th. Do you know who murdered Sadie Hartley? Yes. All I can remember at the moment is that I knew that Sarah had killed someone. I've been terrified for days, absolutely terrified for days while she was around. The very first question I asked you was, did you kill Sadie Hart? You said no. no. And then I said, do you know who killed? And you said yes. Who killed Sadie Hartley? Sarah Williams. How do you know that? Because she's at the core of this knot of panic in me. But I can't remember that she killed her. What can you remember that terrifies you about Sarah? I think I started to suspect that she was a psychopath and that I was very close friends with the psychopath. I'm going to show you, Kit, three photographs of a road which is called Sunnybank Road. 
Okay. Do you remember Sarah in connection with this property? Uh, yes. What does she instruct you to do? I, 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 I... Go, to, go to the door, knock, ask Mrs Hartley and hand the flowers. She wanted to find out where the bitch is. She wants to take Ian off the bitch. What, yes. what evidence is it that you've hidden? I've hidden a zapper, a knife, the soles of some boots. Tell me what a zapper is. It's it's a black thing with with, with with a squeezy squeezy and it's got prongs and it makes a horrible crackly 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 noise. The next item on this list, what does that say? A knife. Right, tell me about that. It's a knife and I I suspect, I sus at, the time, at the time I suspected it's killed somebody. Okay, why do you suspect that? Because I've been told to destroy it. Who by? Sarah. She got in my car and gave me bags with instructions to burn the clothes and the towels and everything and utterly destroy everything else. Okay. I, 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 I opened the, open the bag. I opened the bag. <laughs> that... She's done it. She's done it. She's done it. She's done what? She's killed somebody. She's killed somebody. How do you know that? There's 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 a knife and 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 the zapper and and. I've got evidence. I've got evidence. Williams and Walsh had travelled to Darmstadt, a city south of Frankfurt in Germany, using the Hull to Rotterdam ferry. There they bought a stun gun and returned to the UK with it. The forensic laboratory also confirmed that the blood spatter that was found in the sink in Williams's house was a match to Sadie Hartley. The police interviewed Williams again and presented the evidence to her. You have a Nokia phone was seized when we've searched your home address. First call it makes is the phone number of Sadie Hartley's business. No comments. So Sarah, a victim of a really ferocious stabbing, we have her DNA in your bathroom. Is there any feasible reason how that could have happened? Walsh's testimony led to Sarah Williams being charged with Sadie's murder on Wednesday the 20th of January 2016. Police however now had to make a decision on Katrina Walsh's involvement. Why has she trusted you to get rid of the evidence? If you're not involved in this, why has she trusted you? She wants to frame me for it. She wants to frame me for it or kill me and frame me for it. At that stage, that's all I can think. Why don't you walk into a police station and speak to the police? Because whenever I was in that, whenever I was that frightened, I was more frightened of her than anything else. I, I, 
Sadly, Kate, it shouldn't be me that you're sorry to. But and, oh, no, I'm, I'm very, very deeply... But you shouldn't be sorry to me. No, I'm deeply sorry. I, I, I mean, that's, that's the... That, oh, God. Oh. Right. Okay. Right. Officers took Walsh to Colling Farm, where she was a riding instructor and her horse Zephyr was stabled. She led police to the bottom of a field where she pointed out areas of the stream's embankment where they were able to find the stun gun with the missing barb, a car key, and most importantly, the murder weapon, a kitchen knife, which, despite being out in the elements, still had blood on the handle. Walsh was subsequently charged with murder. When searching the rest of the farm, police uncovered all of Walsh's diaries on wooden eaves in one of the stables, the contents of which severely implicated both Walsh and Williams. The two women had meticulously planned the murder over a 17-month period and it was chronicled in the diaries kept by Walsh. It was a compelling but incriminating record of their actions. Some of the extracts from the diary read as follows. Please bear in mind that these are direct quotes and that there are some very derogatory terms in here as well as some language that some listeners may not find appropriate. September 2014 Sarah came round so got caught up in endless murder plots for Ian's other half. June 2015 We're also seriously talking about getting rid of her opponent. I agree is probably the best play. She does seem to be a totally evil bitch. August 2015 Wow I may get to be instrumental in helping remove that awful woman. This may happen. Wow. I'm unexpectedly excited by this. Was so buzzing so much, I needed a southern comfort to wind down a bit. From the diary entries, it's obvious that Walsh was trying to recruit her ex-husband Kevin into the plans to be a hitman. She had married Kevin Walsh in 1984, sharing common interest in horses, motorcycling and even Viking reenactment events, but he left her for another woman in 2008. After Walsh's ex-husband declined to get involved in anything dodgy, she wrote, A lot of texts from Sarah. Kev not going for the idea of being a hitman after all scuppered that idea plan B will be needed when my mobile went off Sarah so I could say yes to her coming round and we could plot to take the bin out as Kev was a bust on it I'm going to be involved now heaven help me she later added I have no moral qualms just a serious don't let us get caught, Twinge. September 2015 The diary entries revealed how Walsh wanted to take an ISIS flag to the murder scene 
to mislead the investigation and wanted to teach Sarah Williams how to ride a motorbike for a hit on Sadie. She said, I'm much more into that. Fortunately, Sarah has had an idea that would spare me the anxiety as she thinks of riding a motorbike... A mo- Fortunately, Sarah had an idea that would spare me the anxiety as she thinks of just riding on a motorcycle, killing and leaving said floozy and riding off. I just have to clandestinely train Sarah to ride a bike and store said bike. She later added, Sarah turned up, caught hunted, then discussed plans to off the cunt. For those outside of the UK, Hunted is a television show where 14 British citizens are given fugitive status and then go on the run. For up to 28 days, they must evade capture from some of the world's best investigators using facial recognition software, AMPR cameras, all the same technology that will be used to track terrorists. A perfect show for anyone who wanted to learn how to evade capture. In October 2015, she wrote, Just buzzing too much over the end of Hunted, and all the planning after. Sarah has ordered a GPS tracker on my credit card to be delivered here, and will give me the cash for it. That's fine, as I'm not going to be involved at the sharp end. A month later, Williams took the GPS tracker. It was then attached to Ian's car, during a Christmas party at the Chill Factor, which was attended by Sadie, Ian and Williams. Walsh wrote in her diary, I said no matter what her way of testing the bitch, then she could use the zapper or she risks being injured herself. So we'll get a trip to Germany out of this. Took ages to wind down, all the excitement of plotting the perfect murder. Returning home, Williams used the GPS tracker to find out where Sadie lived and travelled to her home. On January the 4th, 2016, Williams sent a text to Walsh saying, Don't forget to crack on with your shopping. Suddenly it's time. The next day, Walsh was caught on CCTV using her loyalty club card to buy the murder weapon, a carving knife, from Tesco's in Broughton. Williams then travelled to Hartley Taylor Medical Communications in Nutsford, where Sadie worked, and stayed for two hours. A day later, Williams and Walsh bought a £3 bunch of flowers from Tesco's Haslinden store, which Walsh delivered to Sadie's home, whilst Williams stayed outside. Over the next few days, Williams and Walsh began to put their murder plot into action. They bought the Renault Clio, and Williams bought clothes and wrong-sized boots from the Cheshire Oaks retail park. Walsh was captured on CCTV, buying petrol for the Vauxhall, which was used to pick Williams up after the murder when the Clio was parked where it was found. On January the 14th, Williams went to work 
but at 3pm called David Hardwick and told him that she wasn't feeling well and was going home. She later texted him to say that she was going to have a nap. At 7.15pm, Sadie arrived back at her home following a horse ride. Around 45 minutes later, Williams knocked on the door. She lunged at Sadie with the stun gun before stabbing her and slashing her 41 times. Four and a half minutes later, she was captured on CCTV, walking back down Sunnybank Road towards her car. These twisted women, who murdered an innocent lady, then rejoiced by singing along to the soundtrack of the ABBA tribute film Mamma Mia. Both women appeared at Blackburn Magistrates Court in late January 2016, where both spoke only to give their name and plead not guilty. The funeral of Sadie took place at the Vale Royal Crematorium in Northwich at 1pm on Monday the 15th of February 2016. The family asked that instead of flowers, donations were requested for the Horse Trust or B-Positive Acute Leukemia Patient Support Group. The trial began at Preston Crown Court on the 5th of July 2016 before Mr Justice Turner. John McDermott QC was representing the prosecution. During the trial, Prosecutor John McDermott QC described the duo as a self-styled Batman and Robin, but on the wrong side of the law. He said they plotted to fulfil William's desire to rekindle her relationship with Ian Johnson, which he had ended after she became possessive and difficult, jurors heard. Williams had described herself as a she-devil and little psycho in a text to a friend. The planning was described in court as the stuff of spy novels. A lot of the trial focused on the relationship between Ian Johnson and Williams. Prosecuting John McDermott QC read a series of texts between the couple, with Williams saying after one encounter that she had had a lovely time and the sex was fantastic. Williams described Ian as an alpha male, but also said she was afraid of being hurt by the former firefighter. They also revealed that Ian had no apparent intention of leaving Sadie, and at times seemed to regret the affair. In one text he said, I wasn't looking for you or expecting you to appear. Sadie has been through hell. I always do my best to keep people safe. Sometimes I just hate who I am. In another, a frustrated Williams accused Ian of not showing her enough respect, saying, I'm just not good enough. But separately, Williams texted friends saying she wanted the relationship to progress quickly. Being the little psychopath that I am, I want to push it along. In one long exchange on Christmas Eve 2013, in which Williams seemed eager to spend the period with Ian, he replied, Sarah, please get that I can't have you here at this time. It's too difficult. Sorry, 
I can't have you coming around when these people know Sadie. It's not about you, it's about me. I'm sorry. In another message, he says, Sadie has been very kind to me. I'm not going to just blow her out. That's just not who I am. This is way too heavy. Another stated, You knew I was seeing Sadie when this all started. Williams replies, I'm just never good enough. I should not be feeling like this and sobbing my heart out. I'm sorry for loving you. I'm sorry for caring. The court also heard how this was not the first time that Williams and Walsh had tried an elaborate plan to separate one of Williams' love interests from his family. Master A, who I mentioned earlier, was the first instructor Williams had an affair with and was a victim of similar treatment. His wife of 25 years found out that he had been unfaithful when Williams visited the family home whilst he was away in Thailand in 2012. A letter was also sent to her at around the same time. Master A said that he and Williams would meet up in hotels for sex, but he did not see it as a serious relationship. The timeline was presented in court, outlining the evidence which has been in this episode. Eventually, after six weeks, jurors deliberated for seven hours and nine minutes before returning a verdict. Williams and Walsh were found guilty of murder. As the verdicts were delivered in court, Williams swallowed hard as the forewoman spoke, while Walsh gave a slight nod of her head. Sadie's daughter, Charlotte, wiped away tears as she sat in the public gallery next to Gary Hartley, her father and Sadie's ex-husband, and her brother Harry. Ian Johnson, sitting a few rows behind them, had tears in his eyes and gave a slight nod as the verdicts came in. Charlotte said she was unable to explain how much pain and horror the murderer brought upon her family. She said that the last time she had spoken to her mother was to tell her that she had got engaged whilst being in a way. In a poignant victim statement read out to the court through the prosecutor John McDermott, she said that her mother had been so happy. She said she was unable to put the heartbreaking thoughts to the back of her head. It is the most shocking and unforgettable news, she said. These two women who murdered my mum plotted for months to do these things and I don't know how a human being could do this to another human being. It's like living a nightmare. I will never be able to forget how frightened and scared my mum would have been that night in her own home where she's meant to be safe. Mr Justice Turner then passed sentence on the two women. I quote, Sarah Williams, over a period of about 18 months, you plotted the murder of a woman whose only crime was to love the man you wanted for yourself. But let no one make the mistake of thinking that this was a crime of passion. It was a crime of obsession, of arrogance, of barbarity, but above all, 
it was a crime of pure evil. And over that period of 18 months of scheming, you found in Katrina Walsh both a fellow spirit and enthusiastic participant. You, Walsh, are every bit as morally degenerate as Williams. No wonder you have been best friends over so many years. You have so much in common, being not merely indifferent to the suffering you inflict on others, but positively revelling in it. The evidence in this case as a whole, and your diary entries in particular, Walsh, make me sure that your motive in getting involved was the depraved satisfaction to be gained from helping to kill another human being. You knew all along that this was no game or fantasy. Sadie Hartley died for your amusement. Of course, the plot involved many labyrinth twists and turns, but as you were both fully aware, this was no fiction. On the contrary, it was from an early stage, leading to one and only one conclusion. The well-rehearsed and savage butchery of a blameless woman. The meandering and over-elaborate planning served to heighten your pleasure by deliciously postponing your ultimate and inevitable gratification. Doubtless, the features of secret agent-style intrigue carried with them elements of fantasy, but this was no harmless world of make-believe, it was a game of death. The first recorded discussions between you concerning the option of killing Sadie Hartley took place as long ago as August 2014, and I am satisfied that your diary, Walsh, correctly refers at that time to endless murder plots for Ian's other half. When sending vile letters to Sadie Hartley failed to break up her relationship with Ian Johnson, you, Williams, continued to pursue him. The first concrete plan to kill Sadie involved trying to recruit your ex-husband, Walsh, to act as a paid hitman. There can be no doubt that this was no game. It progressed no further only because Kevin Walsh did not want to get involved. By October of last year, however, you were taking the first steps towards putting into place the plan which would lead to the murder. You brought a tracking device to put on Ian's car to find out where he was going. You made a special trip all the way to Darmstadt in Germany to buy a stun gun which you knew to be illegal in England and celebrated the victory of smuggling it through customs. You knew then that the only purpose of the stun gun would be to render Sadie Hartley helpless so she would put up no resistance as she was being hacked to death. I am in no doubt that her murder was planned and rehearsed down to the finest detail. I have read the dignified and poignant statements of Harry and Charlotte Hartley, Ian Johnson and Julie Taylor. 
they reveal Sadie Hartley to have been a loving mother, faithful partner and a woman dedicated to achieving and promoting advancements and improvements in the provision of intensive care medicine and in the areas of haematology and infection. The contrast between her life, a thermine generosity of spirit and your vile, destructive, resentful and self-regarding hypocrisy could hardly be starker. So I now proceed to the process of sentencing. There is only one sentence for murder. It is life imprisonment. In my view, there is every justification for taking a starting point of 30 years for both of you in this case. The particular and central features of this case which justify such an approach can be listed as follows. 1. The level of sophistication involved in the preparation for the murder involving, as it did, tracker devices, a car with falsified number plates and an imported stun gun was, of an unparalleled degree, more closely redolent of the clinical assassination than a personal killing. 2. The period of many months over which the meticulous planning took place reveals not only the highest level of culpability, but it also gave both of you every opportunity to reflect on the evil you were about to perpetrate. 2. The period of many months over which the meticulous planning took place reveals not only the highest level of culpability, but it also gave both of you every opportunity to reflect on the evil you were about to perpetrate. These were opportunities you repeatedly chose to ignore. 3. The murder method you adopted involved not only taking a knife to the scene, but invading your victim's home at night and slaughtering her like an animal by first incapacitating her with a massive electric shock to the head and then hacking and slashing her to death with almost unimaginable ferocity. Neither of you has shown the slightest remorse about what you did to Sadie Hartley or the family and friends she has left behind. With you, Williams, resorting to arrogant insolence and you, Walsh, putting on an ostentatious and devious show of feigned mental impairment to the police in a desperate attempt to avoid the consequences of what you had done. I am in no doubt, Walsh, that such cooperation you gave the police in leading them to the evidence was entirely motivated by the desire to save your own skin. The second step is to take into account any aggravating or mitigating factors which would justify a departure from the starting point. In your cases, it is potentially relevant mitigating factor that you have no previous criminal convictions, but this is offset by the fact that you were both previously engaged in a very similar campaign of harassment and vilification against another woman whose husband you, Williams, coveted for yourself.
The outcome was, of course, very different from that in this trial. But your stalking conduct could not stop until the police intervened with a warning. It follows that in your case a minimum term of 30 years is appropriate. In your case, Walsh, I have to bear in mind that you did not physically carry out the murder, nor were you present when it happened. You appear from the contents of your diary to have acted under the delusion that as long as you were not there, at the sharp end, you would not go to prison. How wrong you were. I find that but for your support and encouragement, there is a very real chance that this killing would never have occurred. Time and time again you provided the camouflage upon which Williams relied to distance herself from the murder. You were the perfect partner in crime. Loyal, amoral, and perhaps most welcome of all, anonymous. You spent hours, days and months plotting and scheming the death of Sadie Hartley. A recreation from which, as your diaries reveal, you derived considerable pleasure and satisfaction. You reintroduced your ex-husband to Williams, intending that he should act as a hired killer. You used a burner SIM to cover your tracks. You bought the tracking devices on your credit card. You set up an email address to be used, in particular to make land registry searches to locate Sadie Hartley's home. You accompanied Williams to Germany to get the stun gun. You brought and paid for the car to be used in the murder and brought and used the tape to change the registration number on the plates. You bought the clothes for Williams to wear when she committed the murder. You brought the knife with which Williams stabbed Sadie Hartley to death and gave it to her for that very purpose. You went on the sinister mission to pinpoint Sadie Hartley's home by passing yourself off as a flower delivery woman when you well knew at the time that those flowers were the equivalent of the black spot which marked her death. By prearrangement, you met up with Williams after the murder with cleaning products to mop up the blood from the car. You concealed all the grisly paraphernalia from the murder at Colling Farm, having first done your best to burn or destroy the contaminated items. In your case, therefore, although some discount is called for to reflect the fact that you did not carry out the actual killing, the final sentence must adequately reflect the fact that you are a willing, sympathetic and energetic confederate right from the outset. The assistance you provided was sustained and practical. You were fully involved as a joint participant throughout. Accordingly, I am satisfied that a minimum term of 25 years is appropriate to reflect the extent of your involvement. After the trial, Manchester Evening News revealed the exact cost of the trial. Williams had spent £97,258 
in trial costs, which is about $128,000, $88,835 on a Crown Court barrister, and £15,640 on other trial expenses. Katrina Walsh, who used the taxpayers' money in the form of legal aid, was granted £107,574, or $141,000, in Crown Court trial costs. $69,965 for a barrister, and $5,515 in other trial payments. She also launched an appeal. D.S. Paul Withers, in charge of the case, said, Katrina Walsh made reference in her diary to I can't believe what we're doing but she had many, many months and years to say no, this cannot happen or report it to the local police. This is not a momentary lapse of control or loss of control. This is premeditated, this is planned, almost an assassination of a totally innocent lady. A lady in her 60s who has never done anything wrong in her life and loses her life in the most horrendous circumstances that I can imagine. Sarah Williams and Katrina Walsh are not the only people who get a life sentence in respect of what happened because Charlotte, Harry, Gary, Ian Johnson and the siblings of Sadie I am sure will never get over it. They have a very different life now. They have to try to get used to a new normality which is incredibly difficult for them. Sadie's daughter, Charlotte, added, They might get life, but what's prison when you've not got a mum and you're out of prison? Nothing will make that feel better. I would just like her to be remembered for just the inspiration that she was to many people. She just literally lit up a room. She was just perfect. There was nothing bad about her that anyone could say. She was just a lovely, trustworthy, kind, loving woman and just cared about everybody. Ian Johnson broke down once more as he read a statement after the hearing. He said, No sentence imaginable could ever replace Sadie and everything she has lived for. She was kind, loving, thoughtful, intelligent, and the best friend anyone could ever have. The brutal, evil, and cowardly attack perpetrated against the defenceless Sadie tore into our families, friends, and communities. There can be no forgiveness for such vile behaviour. Speaking after the verdict, Sadie's son Harry said, Her death has left a huge void and the last few months have been the hardest we could ever have imagined. Mum was a much-loved sister, aunt, friend to many. She was an inspiration to everyone around her, an adventurer who lit up the room. She was perfect. He added that they may have received some justice with the conviction, but it will never be enough to bring our mum back. So that's it for this week. 
Please remember, if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a page on Facebook, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the website www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast That's www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what may be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.